In a unanimous opinion, the Supreme Court rejected Mississippi's claim that Tennessee is stealing its water right from under it. There's an issue in Utah now where the Great Salt Lake is drying up in part because people are intercepting the fresh water that should That's flow right, into yeah. the Great Salt Lake. And if, if that bottom dries up, it's a human health hazard. Did you know that virtually all legal experts had forewarned Mississippi that it has no cause of action in this case? Which makes you think why Mississippi brought this suit in the first place. Hey there, news peelers. Today is December 10, 2021, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel.News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Mississippi versus Tennessee is the first case argued in the Supreme Court's current term, which began on October 4th, and this is also the first opinion delivered by the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the court's brief opinion in which the court refused to treat Mississippi's groundwater any different than more than a century of jurisprudence regarding above-ground water dispute. On the surface, water rights may not seem to be a front-page headline sort of news. Most Americans are not anxious about interstate water disputes, but perhaps they should be, as western states grapple with a historic drought. The Colorado River has declared its first ever water shortage, and the continued diversion of water far away from their river sources is leading to dire environmental consequences. To better understand the legal doctrines and the history of water apportionment between U.S. states, including the details of this Mississippi versus Tennessee case, and the particular roles that the U.S. Supreme Court and Congress play when it comes to water disputes and agreements between states, we spoke to Professor Robin Craig of U.S. Gold School of Law. She specializes in all things water and has authored, co-authored, and edited many books on the subject, including a book titled The Clean Water Act and the Constitution. Professor Craig has a long list of accomplishments and engagements relating to water law, management, and scholarship in the U.S. and abroad. They're listed on her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. My conversation with her was recorded before the Supreme Court rendered its decision in the Mississippi versus Tennessee case. So stay with me as Professor Craig and I peel the history behind this news.
This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Craig, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Professor Craig, I'm eager to talk about the Mississippi versus Tennessee case, which is a water rights case that is now before the Supreme Court. Uh, the High Court uh, has already heard oral argument in the case and will render a decision sometime in 2022, right? Correct. It, it could be very fast, but probably next uh, next year, yes. Next year, yeah. So before we talk about this important case, I think understanding some background about water rights will be helpful to me and our audience. So let's let's get into the basic tenet of water rights, water rights law, that is uh, the doctrine of equitable apportionment. I've heard this a lot, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, the doctrine of equitable apportionment is a Supreme Court made law for um, deciding how states should share interstate water resources. Uh, so it has, until Mississippi versus Tennessee, applied to surface water. Uh, there's an interesting salmon case, uh, Idaho, XRL, or uh, Evans versus Oregon, that used equitable apportionment for salmon as well as the water itself. But it, it's a shared resource doctrine out of the Supreme Court. So when two states share a river, uh, it's usually the downstream state uh, files a case with the Supreme Court and asks the Supreme Court to dictate how the two states should share the river. Um, That's a bit strange when you say uh, Supreme Court dictate how they should share. Shouldn't that be something that's the privy of us and politicians? Well, it could be. Uh, there, there are three ways for states to figure out how they're going to share an interstate water resource. Uh, one is to go to the Supreme Court and ask for an equitable apportionment. One is to come up with their own agreement, uh, which is known as an interstate compact. Uh, interstate compacts are allowed under the federal constitution, but they have to be approved by Congress. So eventually Congress will get involved in an interstate compact. And there are a lot of interstate agreements out there on how to share waterways uh, throughout the United States. So uh, if, if, let's say, Colorado and Nevada, uh, you know, tried to talk about how to split the water resources out of the Colorado River, Congress needs to approve that? Well, Colorado River is a special case. Colorado uh, River, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Colorado River uh, well, actually does have two compacts uh, on it, but it's got a treaty and a whole lot of other things. So the Colorado River is a special case. Oh, boy, for, I pressed the hot button there. Yeah, yeah. For, for any other waterway, um, for example, California and Nevada have an interstate compact about Lake Tahoe. Uh, Montana 
uh, is part, and Wyoming are part of an interstate compact about the Yellowstone River. So there are a lot of interstate compacts out there. So what intrigues me is that, let's go to the case of uh, Lake Tahoe, when uh, California and Nevada talk about some sort of agreement, they signed, the governor signed, that still needs to be agreed upon or, or okayed by the U.S. Congress? Is that what yes. you were... That could be a very complicated, long process. It can. Um, more often than not, Congress is happy to approve them. Uh, and occasionally it has pre-approved interstate compacts. Uh, but yeah, so it, it, they function both as state law because it has to go through a state lawmaking process and as federal law after Congress approves them. Uh, but that comes out of the interstate uh, compacts clause of the Constitution that says states can't form their own agreements without congressional approval. So uh, some some uh, Congress uh, man or woman in, uh, in or senator in Maine could interfere with some sort of compact on water rights between California and Nevada. It could. Yeah, they could. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Has that happened? Have that such a thing happened? Uh, there, there's been some negotiations around them, but most of the time, um, if the states are happy with it, there's not a whole lot of motivation in Congress to interfere with the agreement. Uh, now, if a state has been left out uh, that should be part of the compact, that might be a different story. But most of the time, the negotiations include all of the states who are relevant. So. Um, it, it doesn't cause a whole lot of problems in, con in they, they got bigger fish to fry, like the infrastructure yeah, it, and right, right. other stuff. Um, going back to the doctrine of equitable apportionment. Well, actually, if I can interrupt, let me, let me just finish it out. The, the third uh, option is that Congress itself can apportion a waterway. Uh, so you asked, you know, could Congress do this? Could our politicians do it? Yes, they could. Congress hasn't done it very often, but it can. So, when, sorry. When was, but, when was the last time it did it? Uh, Boulder Canyon Project Act, and uh, it was interpreted as a congressional apportionment of the lower basin of the Colorado River. Uh, whether that's actually what Congress intended, different question, but the Supreme Court said Congress had done it, so that's what apportioned uh, the, the lower half of the Colorado River. So Supreme Court had to get in and sort of designate a law right. as, yeah, um, which sort of goes back to the intriguing point about doctrine of equitable apportionment. It, from what you tell me, this has never been codified into law, right? Correct. Correct. It, it is Supreme Court made, um, judge made common law for interstate conflicts. Is this what a uh, conservative in the political camp, I don't mean legal, sort of conservative um, politicians call judicial legislation? Is this what they mean by that? Possibly. Um, the Constitution says that when two states are fighting each other, mm -hmm. uh, they need to go to the Supreme Court. Congress agreed to that in the legislati legislation that governs the federal courts. Uh, and so once the states are in front of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court kind of has to figure out what to do with them. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, it just lingers. <laughs> Somebody has to decide, right? Right, exactly. So 
Uh, in the absence of congressional legislation on what to do with these interstate disputes, Supreme Court had to come up with some rules. Uh, they're, they're very special cases. How long has the doctrine of uh, equitable apportionment been around? Uh, the first case that really announced it as a doctrine was Kansas versus Colorado, and that was in 1907. So, oh wow, it, it, it's over a century old now. Yes. Okay, it's well established. Um, why don't we take a short break and then talk about the Supreme Court water rights case, Mississippi okay. versus Tennessee. Professor Craig, what is the Mississippi versus Tennessee case that's before the Supreme Court now about? Mississippi uh, has a long-running dispute with Tennessee about groundwater, and that's one of the things that's special about this case is it's the first time that a state has asked the Supreme Court to really deal with groundwater. Uh, all the other cases have been an aquifer, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, the other thing that's interesting about this case is that Mississippi has steadfastly refused to ask for an equitable apportionment. Uh, instead, uh, Mississippi is floating a territorial rights claim, uh, arguing that Memphis, Tennessee, with Tennessee's um, permission, permitting, has been stealing Mississippi's groundwater. Uh, and, and in particular, uh, Memphis is pumping groundwater out of this shared aquifer uh, very close to the Mississippi-Tennessee border and creating what's known as a cone of depression, kind of a, a suction zone under the pumping that is pulling water out from under Mississippi and into Tennessee. Uh, That's and, clever. <laughs> yeah, uh, very clever. And you know, uh, that makes me think of almost, I, I apologize for interjecting, it almost makes me think of horizontal fracking. Yes, sort of, sort of the same idea. It, yeah. it's, uh, it, Mississippi's basically claiming a state-level version of trespass, that you're reaching under Mississippi and taking our water. Uh, <laughs> and... <laughs> And not only that, asking for over $600 million in damages uh, for the water that's been stolen since 1985. So kind of big stakes. <laughs> um, and I, so I want to ask a basic question before we go on sure. a little bit. Sitting here in the West Coast, uh, Southern California, where we're always parched, <laughs> you know, we could use more water. I've traveled through both Mississippi and Tennessee. Those are green states. Is water that big of a deal over there? I, you know, the um, the southeast uh, and that part of the country are starting to experience more water issues. Although oh, wow. this this aquifer has no signs of being depleted, mm -hmm. um, and and that's partly why probably Mississippi didn't argue for equitable apportionment because it would have to be prove that Tennessee was actually injuring the water supply. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence 
that anyone has gone short of water from this aquifer. So uh, Mississippi just wants to be paid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And what's also interesting, if it goes forward, which it probably won't, but if it does, uh, Mississippi. What do you mean if it goes forward? I didn't understand what you mean by that. If the Supreme Court, all the Supreme Court is deciding right now is whether Mississippi will be allowed the cause of action that Mississippi wants, which is this territorial invasion claim. Uh, Also, we're at very early stages uh, when it comes to this. This is, okay. Yeah, so uh, if they decide that Mississippi can go forward with this claim, then Tennessee is pretty well set up. Uh, Mississippi is also pumping water near the border on its side uh, from the aquifer. And so Tennessee is set up for a parallel counterclaim that fine, if you say we're stealing your water and you get to go forward with that, you're also pumping and stealing our water and we've got some damages too. Uh, so it, it could be get to be kind of a fracas if the, the Supreme Court allows it to go forward. Uh, I don't think that will happen, but that was some of the questions the justices were asking at oral argument is, well, if this is the rule for Mississippi, it's the rule for all the other states that share the aquifer, and won't you just be in here uh, basically slugging it out and seeing who has the most damages and who's taking the most water from the other states? Uh so, yeah, it was kind of amusing uh, to hear the justices pondering what the ramifications would be. Were there any good answers to that question? Or I guess it was a statement, not just a question, right? It, it was kind of a question. And um, the attorneys, uh, to various extents, said, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it becomes the sort of the... A full employment act for lawyers that deal in water rights, right? Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so that that's what the case is about. Uh, pretty much everyone has told Mississippi that they they don't have this cause of action that the, it needs to be equitable apportionment or nothing. Uh, but that's what the Supreme Court is going to decide: is um, does equitable apportionment apply to groundwater? Is that the only cause of action a state can bring with respect to groundwater? Um, and then does Mississippi have to go back, if they lose, have to go back and replead? Or do they have to start a whole new case? Or what exactly the outcome will be? So Mississippi, going into this, kind of knew that the odds are stacked against it. One would hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that one would hope? Because, well, because there's absolutely no one is on Mississippi's side. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. You the, think this the, is politically motivated or? No, no. I think they're just trying a new legal theory. Um, and, and that's fair um, to try and bring new cases. Uh, you know, at various times with water pollution, for example, the Supreme Court has allowed interstate nuisance cases so that might be another option some of the justices were asking about uh the potential of interstate nuisance um so you know just seeing whether the same rules apply to groundwater that apply to surface water 
uh, if aquifers can be meaningfully different from surface water. Uh, but it's an interesting test case, and we'll see how it comes out. Yeah. Um, as a test case, do you think this will have this case will have far-reaching ramifications? Is this an important case? It is an important case. Um, my personal bet is that it is likely to be one of the shortest Supreme Court water opinions ever. Uh, I <laughs> just think a few that, pages. <laughs> yeah, just a few pages long. I think the justices are basically going to say to Mississippi, um, you don't have the cause of action you want. You have to bring this as an equitable apportionment action or not at all. Um, and then whether, you know, they dismiss the case and Mississippi has to start over or whether they give Mississippi uh, leave to amend the complaint and restart with a different cause of action. Uh, we'll see. But I, like I said, I don't think they're going to say a whole lot more than you picked the wrong cause of action. Uh, now, if the justices uh, go against all prediction and give Mississippi that cause of action, that's going to radically wow. change yeah, water law uh, in the interstate context. Um, or if they decide to wax a little more poetic about equitable apportionment and whether it applies to groundwater or when it applies to groundwater, uh, they could start shaping uh, the groundwater conflicts that are likely to increase as the century goes on. So, you know, like I said, I personally think they're going to keep it short and sweet and not decide anything they don't have to yeah. decide. But uh, if they if they decide to start um, giving some guidelines for future cases, it could be a very interesting opinion. If they do have some ruling or likely dicta about groundwater rights, uh, that could actually impact uh, many farmers because in California, at least I know in the case of California, there are more and more farmers are more and more relying on underground water, right? That's true, but a lot of California's groundwater is intrastate groundwater, uh -huh. so th this would only apply to shared... That's right. Yeah. Aquifers. Uh, so California's uh, State Groundwater Management Act and common law of groundwater would continue to govern uh, most of California's aquifers. Um, so probably not a huge impact in California. Uh, it might be very impactful for the Great Plains Aquifer, sometimes better known as the Ogallala Aquifer. What which, states is that under? Uh, it kind of stretches down the middle of the country uh, from, you know, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, all the way down to Texas. Wow, it's, that's huge. Yeah, it's a huge aquifer. It's being depleted in a lot of places. Uh, and it's what supplies the groundwater for a lot of agriculture in the middle of the country, uh, as well as some towns and cities. So um that that one i think will uh likely spark some interstate conversations and maybe interstate lawsuits in the future could you could you repeat the name of that aquifer please it's the the high, uh great plains aquifer high plains aquifer sorry uh or a lot of times it's referred to as the ogallala aquifer ogallala yeah 
Very nice. As I was um, reviewing the Mississippi versus Tennessee case, I uh, noticed some references to the term original jurisdiction. I think you kind of talked about this. What does that term mean? Original jurisdiction is the ability of a litigant to go straight to the Supreme Court. So they don't have to go through the trial courts. They don't have to go through the Court of Appeals. They just go straight to the Supreme Court. Is, this, is that an option or the only path? In these state versus state lawsuits, it's the only path. Um, there's some other kinds of litigation where states might be involved as one party, but it's a private party or a town or municipality on the other. Uh, then they have to go through the normal trial court process. But it, when it's one state in its sovereign capacity suing another state or states in their sovereign capacity, you go straight to the Supreme Court. And presumably then there's no trial. This is just sort of uh, appellate level, albeit Supreme Court appellate level sort of case. Right, except it's not even appellate because the right. court's making the uh, the original decision. You're not appealing uh, from any other court. Yeah, you're not appealing. Okay. So, And that's why the, the Supreme Court tends to use special masters in these cases, uh, which is a, a court-appointed official, um, uh, either a retired judge usually or uh, somebody who's an expert in water law. Uh, to do the fact-finding and issue a preliminary report with recommendations to the court as a whole. So this is in addition to all the amicus briefs that they received. So they, right. oh, oh, very interesting. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about America's rivers. Okay. Um, we hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Craig, uh, recently I read about the Colorado River's first ever water shortage declaration. Mm -hmm. And in a previous segment, you already said the Colorado River is a special case. And that's, it's not fair for you to ask that question because it's so special. So what's happening to the Colorado River and why is it this special case when it comes to America's rivers? Well, what's happening with the Colorado River is its average flow has been decreasing for a while. And that's what led to the shortage wow. declaration. So the, the shortage declaration actually came in August of 2021. Uh, it applies to the what's known as the 2022 Colorado River water year which actually started on uh, October 1st, 2021. So it runs October 1st, 2021 to mm -hmm. September 30th, 2022. And what that order is implementing uh, is an agreed upon uh, curtailment plan 
when there is a shortage in the Colorado River system, it's called the, the drought contingency plans. It was negotiated by all the relevant parties to the Colorado River, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but it was approved by Congress in 2019. And, and what that plan sets up is uh, a whole lot of triggering events, uh, generally keyed to the water levels in Lake Mead, uh, which is the one that Hoover Dam creates in Nevada, and Lake Powell, which is one the one that the Glen, sorry, the Glen Canyon Dam creates um, up uh, in in Utah. Northern, yeah, and northern. Yeah, the Arizona northern part. Yeah. And so when those reservoir levels drop to certain levels, and there, there are many, many tiers of drought. So the, importantly, this declaration was only a tier one declaration. Um, and it, it only affects uh, Arizona and Nevada. Uh, but it was triggered by the fact that um, Lake Mead dropped to below an elevation of uh, 1,075 feet. That's a measure of how high this, uh, the water level is in the lake, uh, which um, Lake Mead is currently at 35% of its full capacity. Wow. Uh, yeah, which is the lowest it's been since it was originally filled uh, when those reservoirs were originally filled. Lake Powell is at 32% of its total capacity, which is the lowest level it's been at since it was filled. Uh, but dropping below 1,075 feet triggered the tier one curtailments, they're called. Um, and those curtailments uh, so far affect only Arizona and Nevada. Um, Arizona has to cut back uh, 18% of its normal allocation. So it's going to uh, cut back about 8% of the normal state water use. Uh, it's 512,000 acre feet, if you're curious. Wow. Uh, Nevada is going to lose about 7% of its allocation, which is about 21,000 acre feet. So they're the first two uh, states that have to cut, cut back. Um, if the reservoir levels keep dropping, uh, there are many tiers left to go, but this is the first time that drought contingency plan has ever had to be used. So when they cut back, let's say in the case of Nevada, 7% of its allocation, what, how do they make but that allocate. up? <laughs> I mean, where does that 7% come from then? Okay, well, well, how do they make it up? Um, uh, Nevada in particular has been incredible in doing um, water cutbacks, uh, conserving water, reducing water use, getting rid of lawns, recycling water, um, all the big casinos in the Las Vegas Strip intensively recycle their water and reuse water and have low flow everything whether you notice it or not. Um, and so... No, usually in Vegas, Bert. Yeah, right. <laughs> not, not what you're paying attention to unless you're a water geek in Las Vegas, yes. But um, water geeks are fascinated by what, what Las Vegas does with its water. Uh, but both states have had uh, plans in place. You know, they, they agreed to these drought contingency plans. They have measures in place. 
a lot of it will be conservation, um, going to lower flows, not watering lawns, you know, the, the normal first round of things that kick in in the Southwest when you're dealing with a drought. Um, so that's, that's, why, that's what's happening with the, the drought contingency plan and that declaration. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the reservoir levels are still dropping. So we'll, we'll see what happens over the next year. Did this, did this come as a shock or were they sort of foreseeing it? Most people were foreseeing it. Um, and, and this is supposed to be a La Nina year, which is not good for water supplies in the Southwest. So, you know, people are, the, the reason there's a drought contingency plan in the first place is because people were foreseeing that this could really get to be an issue. What states share the Colorado's water supply? Uh, it's the upper basin and the lower basin states. So it's Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, California. Um, and who am I forgetting? Uh, Colorado, uh, New Mexico, sorry, Utah, Wyoming, Arizona, California. So why is it that only Arizona and Nevada had to sort of reallocate their water usage and cut back? You're smiling. Is there something? Yeah, is there a juicy a, story here? Political there, story? There's a lot of politics involved in that. Um, they're the ones that have to cut back because in the lower basin, they're the least senior users. Uh, because of the California gold rush, California developed first. And has uh, in the lower basin, uh, which is Arizona, California, and Nevada, has always been highest in priority. Uh, with the added bonus that California's always had the political muscle in Congress to make that legally real. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as part of many negotiations along the way, um, for example, the California delegation to Congress managed to hold up the Central Arizona project, which was the pipeline project that was needed for Arizona to be able to use its share of the Colorado River. And we uh, held Cal it up. Californians held that up. California held that up until Arizona agreed to subordinate its water rights to, to California's and honor the fact that California was senior. Uh, because otherwise Arizona is <laughs> is first in line in the river and could uh, take take enough to to injure California. So uh, so yeah, there's some politicking going on there, but that's the long answer to why is it Nevada and Arizona that have to cut back first because their rights are deemed the least senior. In the long run, decades to come, as the exodus from California continues. Uh, I mean, right now it's minuscule, but if it continues like that, this politics may change, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. certainly it could. More uh, people live in Arizona and Nevada and they're not going to take the seniority uh, sort of muscle that we have, right? Uh, it, it, very much so. Um, you know, there's, there's other things that happen kind of behind the scenes. Nevada has money, so... It has apparently cut a couple deals with California that it would build water projects for California if California agreed to leave water in Lake Mead. 
So, you know, there, there are other things going on in, in the background as well. But uh, the big battle has always been California versus Arizona. And in fact, uh, the very famous ongoing many decades long Supreme Court case about the Colorado River is entitled Arizona versus California. Arizona. Because that was, that was the key fight. And you say it's ongoing? Yes. The, the Supreme For Court kept, the Supreme Court kept jurisdiction in case there were other issues that that had to be decided. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, so in addition to the states that you identified, do any Native American tribes have water rights over the Colorado River? Like uh, I'm not sure. I think it runs through Navajo Nation, doesn't it? It uh, tributaries run through Navajo Nation, but yeah. yes, they're there are uh, several tribes, about 30 tribes in the system that are entitled to water rights under what's known as the Winters Doctrine, another Supreme Court decision um, that uh, says that tribes with a federal reservation of land have water rights sufficient to support that homeland. Um, they're federal water rights. They... Uh, in the West, they take the priority date of the date of reservation, which is usually pretty senior for a lot mm -hmm. of the tribes. Uh, to, in the, the Arizona versus California decisions I told you about, yeah. uh, five tribes on the main stem Colorado River did get their water rights quantified, recognized and quantified. Uh, so, yes, there are tribes that have water rights in the Colorado River itself. Um, other, no, no other tribes got quantified as part of that decision, but several tribes have negotiated water rights settlements at this point. Uh, the Navajo Nation, for example, has a water rights settlement with New Mexico. Uh, it's closing out its settlement with Utah, um, does not have a settlement with Arizona yet, but um, slowly but surely those uh, tribes are getting their water rights settled, not fast enough, but um, there are a lot of tribes in Arizona that are still legally entitled to water, right, but water rights, but until there's a number Put on their water rights it's really hard quantified as you as yeah. you said yeah yeah quantified it's hard for them to insist on getting their water this makes water rights really complex it does <laughs> has um now i'm just going sort of uh this is a question out of the left field has there ever been any thought about creating a specialized court before a case as such gets to the Supreme Court. You know how in the 80s they created the federal uh, circuit for patent cases, mainly right. patent cases and some other cases as well, because patent cases were so, uh, uh, you know, complex and specialized. I'm telling you, I, I used to practice patent law. I'm listening to this. This is damn complex. It as is very, very complex. Uh, you know, a lot of states, particularly in the West, have specialized water courts. So Colorado is famous for its water court. Mm -hmm. Idaho um, has a special place to go for water because it is so complex. Um, the federal courts traditionally have thought they could understand water law. 
Um, when other kinds Have of they? Uh, not well, I no. think would be the oh, yeah. answer. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, when there are other cases that come up involving state water rights, um, particularly in the, the takings context, because water rights are property, uh, the federal court of claims and the federal circuit have slowly been learning that it really is a complex subject and maybe they should ask the state Supreme Court for an opinion before they try to figure out what state water rights actually are. Uh, but at, at, at a pre-Supreme Court level, no, I'm aware of no proposal to generate a special court. It would make sense. It would make sense. And, and like I said, that's why they do involve a special master yeah. in these cases. Um, like I said, traditionally, uh, a retired judge or an academic that understands water law uh, to help the Supreme Court be guided through some of the complexities of these issues. Have you been a special master? I have not. No. Is, is that I something have. that you'd like to do? I think it would be fun. Yes. Yeah, I bet. I, I, um, I would like to do it. Um, you know, in the news from time to time, and I'm talking about popular news, not sort of specialized journals or social media groups. From time to time, we hear about the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. But we almost never hear about the Snake River. I've actually camped there, uh, or the Columbia River. I've been on a boat there, or or the Mississippi, with the exception, of course, flooding. Flooding. Why is the Colorado River so special? Well, part of it is because it supplies water to forty million people, and I forget how many countless of thousands of acres of agriculture in the West, in the, the very water-starved West. So when it's having problems, uh, large segments of the population and large uh, parts of the American food supply are going to have problems. Um, uh, in part, just because so many states are involved in it, we've got also got a treaty with Mexico. So when things start going haywire with the Colorado River, uh, it's also aspects. it's got international aspects to it. Um, uh, in part, because the Grand Canyon is part of the Colorado River and those two huge dams, and they're uh, in normal years recreation supporting reservoirs so mm -hmm. a lot of people know the colorado river and even if they're not living in the seven states that share it uh they've been to the grand canyon or they've rafted the colorado river or they rent a houseboat on lake powell or they've been through hoover dam I've done three like of those, so you're yeah right. yeah so <laughs> I, you know, I think why it makes the news is it's big and it's important and a lot of people have personal experience with it and um, it could, you know, it could potentially affect Los Angeles and Phoenix and Las Vegas. Uh, so cities people care about. I think one of the salient points that you brought up is that in contrast, let's say to the Mississippi, right, or the Snake River or the Columbia River, it also supplies water for uh, a parched or, or a dry segment of the nation. Uh, um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Craig as we get into the perspective. 
Professor Craig, the COP26 climate conference took place recently in Glasgow. So I want to ask this question. We talked about so much law here and property. So do water rights impact the environment, uh, climate change? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, it goes both ways. Um, water rights, particularly in the West, are a right to take water out of the river. Uh, and usually in the West, the East has got slightly different rules, but in the, in the West, uh, to take it far away from the river, the water may never go back to that particular river. Um, and so in terms of environment, um, your draining rivers, uh, the traditional rules in the West uh, viewed water left in the river as a waste of something that could be used for human development. <laughs> now, uh, we've backed off of that in pretty much every state in the West since, but not before a lot of uh, rivers became overappropriated. So you have rivers that should be supporting fish populations and other aquatic ecosystems that run dry because people are taking so much water. Um, there's an issue in Utah now where the Great Salt Lake is drying up in part because people are intercepting the fresh water that should That's flow right, into yeah. the Great Salt Lake. And if, if that bottom dries up, it's a human health hazard. Uh, the dust is a problem in and of itself, and it's got a lot of toxic things in that bottom. So, uh, so yeah, the, there are issues for the environment. Uh, but there's also something called the water energy nexus. Uh, water energy nectar. That's interesting. Yeah, the water energy nexus. And this is the part that's relevant to climate change. Uh, and, it, and again, it goes both ways. Um, most forms of energy production take water. And most forms of water use take energy. So if you think about the Colorado River and all the pipeline systems that come off the Colorado River, there's energy involved in moving water around. Water is heavy. It takes, takes a fair amount of electricity to get it to where it's supposed to be going. Now, a lot, sometimes you can make use of gravity flow, but sometimes you can't. Um, uh, if you think about water treatment, all of us like to drink clean water. Uh, water treatment takes a fair amount of energy to, to get the clean water, uh, either for drinking water or uh, on the other end in the sewage treatment plants. They're, they're treating water as well, um, and that takes energy. Um, on the other side, uh, the water needed for energy production, the obvious one is hydropower. So in terms of climate change, we like to rely on renewable resources. Uh, hydropower is not without its environmental impacts, uh, for sure. By hydropower, you essentially mean more dams, or is there, are there different versions of hydropower? Uh, there are different versions of hydropower. We've got pretty much all the dams we need, but we rely a lot on hydropower, and that's at the base of our renewable energy. When we're trying to get rid of fossil fuels, hydropower uh, is uh, very important in various parts of the country for uh, not 
increasing our use of fossil fuels for electricity production. What's an uh, example of a hydropower in addition to dams? Uh, well, a lot of the pipelines, when they're going downhill, have mechanisms in them to generate hydropower as well. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so it's, it's diverse. It's diverse. Yes. Um, but, you know, fossil fuel power plants and nuclear power plants, which are another proposal for dealing with climate change, they need cooling water. They need huge amounts of cooling water, um, and they can't function without those huge amounts of cooling water. So that is a significant portion of water use in the energy sector um, is that cooling water. Now, as coal-fired power plants come offline, that frees up some water in a lot of cases. But if you're replacing them with nuclear power plants, uh, that cooling water is going to go right back to energy production. So a uh, lot of interconnection. And uh, one of the, the messages that came out at COP26, um, not as loudly as, as perhaps it should have, <laughs> was uh, you can't think about decarbonizing the energy supply worldwide without thinking about what that's doing to your water supply and how you're decarbonizing. Um, solar arrays, uh, wind power are a little less water intensive, particularly once you've gotten the parts built and up and operating. Um, but you have to think about water as part of the equation as you're trying to deal with climate change, because of course, climate change is also dramatically affecting water supplies uh, within the United States. That's part of why we have a Colorado River issue yeah. uh, and, and around the world. So it all has to be thought about together. And water is very much part of the, the climate change solution. You think uh, we will reach a point in sort of scarcity of our uh, internal waters, such as rivers? Um, well, scarcity is probably a strong term, but sort of we become more aware of the danger of uh, sort of low levels that we invest more money in desalinization plants. I know in Santa Barbara, they tried it. It was so expensive. I, I don't know if they've stopped the project or not, but it, it wasn't sort of an exciting, fruitful project, if I remember that correctly. Is that something I, that's it? Go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I actually lived in Santa Barbara during the drought that prompted them to build oh, uh, okay. the, the, the desal plant there. Uh, and at the time, Santa Barbara was not hooked up to the state water project. Um, mm -hmm. So our water supply was Lake Kachuma. And it, it was one of these seven-year mega droughts that California gets. Um, yep, yep. And by the last couple of years, we were watching Lake Kachuma drop to dangerously low levels. Uh, wow. every, everybody had installed low flow everything. There were uh, restrictions on what you could use water for. And so Santa Barbara um, quite rationally at the time said, hey, you know, we need an alternative source of water, uh, built the desalination plant, and then shortly thereafter hooked up to the state water project um, and so mothballed the desal plant because they were now on 
um, at the time more reliable state water project. Uh, but in, in addition to an announcement of drought in the Colorado River, we've also had announcements in California that the state water project and um, the uh, Central Valley Project, the federal uh, partner to the state water project, are probably not going to be delivering a whole lot of water this year either. And so oh, wow. Santa Barbara has taken its desal plant out of mothballs and is prepared to use it. Uh, and of course, San Diego has has its desal plant. Um, at one point, California had a full plan to build desalination plants up and down the coast. Um, that kind of went dormant uh, during the 2008 uh, financial crisis, but uh, the plans are there if if California chooses to resurrect them. Um, now, desalination back to our water energy nexus tends to be a fairly energy intensive way to get water. You have to spend energy to get that. <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. to spend the energy to get it. Um, and worldwide, it's most prominent um, in countries that have a lot of petroleum and not much water. So uh, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. Kuwait, um, the the uh, Arabian Peninsula leads the world in, in desalination because they basically have no, no other alternative. They're yeah. drying up their aquifers. Uh, but, but yeah, it's a, it's an option. Um, like everything else in the complicated world of, uh, cost benefit and risk benefit analysis it's got some environmental impacts there are ways to do it um, more efficiency efficiently and less efficiently uh, teaming it up with a power plant for example mm -hmm. is a is a good way to take uh, take make use of the heated water that the power plant is producing um, which is what San Diego did so yeah there's 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 a lot of ins and outs of that. Um, but it doesn't seem to be something that's sort of in, in the forefront of conversations about water supply. No, no, yeah, not, yeah. not yet. Not yet. Um, how much more it would take to bring it back to the <laughs> forefront of conversations in California, I, I think is not much. Um, but there, there are other forms of desal, too, that are already important. So Texas, for example has a lot of desalination. It's it's not for ocean water, it's for their brackish groundwater. So uh, they've got, got a lot of water supplies that are not quite drinkable, and so they use a less intensive form of, of desal to take it from brackish to drinkable. So, um, it, you know, it has other uses too. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about water rights of everything that we talked about, <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? Oh, I think it, it, it is a complex subject. Uh, we haven't even gotten into the different kinds of water rights that exist, really. Um, and uh, important to remember that they are Water rights are decisions we made about what we wanted water to be. Uh, and so there's nothing inherently uh, inviolable about what a water right is and what it might need to be for the future. So you mean what you mean is that we can change it? We can change it. Yeah. 
That's a great point. Professor Craig, thank you so much for educating me and our audience. Uh, uh, you're welcome back to the PL.news. Anytime maybe to talk about the more complex issues of water rights, <laughs> different types of water rights. Uh, and to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.news.